Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Why did Trump imply he was, quote, being charged under the Insurrection Act? Why did Trump put that out? Those words, Insurrection Act, on his social media propaganda site. And why did he then delete that post within half an hour and replace the words Insurrection Act with the words Espionage Act? Is there a chance... Somebody has told him that he may actually be charged under the Insurrection Act. Could Jack Smith be prosecuting him under the disqualification clause of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? Could the special counsel be trying to get Donald Trump disqualified from ever again holding office in this country? The very thought of it is breathtaking. Quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof, unquote. Any person will make tens of thousands of mistakes with words in their lifetime, and Trump, more than that, But almost all substitution mistakes, you mean one word, but you say or write another, have one minimum threshold. The person who substitutes the one word for the other, the person who writes Insurrection Act when he intended to write Espionage Act, that person has been thinking about the Insurrection Act. The word insurrection did not fall off a shelf 
and hit Trump in his big fat head. And he suddenly wrote it when he meant to write espionage. If I haven't been clear yet, let me state this explicitly. I do not have a source in the special counsel's office. I don't know the address. I don't have a cousin whose meter maid's twin brother's spiritual advisor's uncle's nephew types up the daily notes there. Nor have any of the people I actually do know who might have those kinds of sources said anything. Nor is there anything, anything from any of the solid dozen or so reporters covering the coming trials of Trump that suggests anything. There's no extrapolation here. There's no reading between the lines. There are no lines to read. Nobody has said Jack Smith is thinking about prosecuting Trump for insurrection. This thread is, in terms of facts, about as thin as it gets. And yet I am still sitting here wondering wondering why he wrote what he wrote. And I am absolutely convinced that Trump has been thinking about the Insurrection Act for whatever reason. So setting aside the one thing you and I most want to be true, that even some of Trump's idiot legal advisors, including the non-lawyer advisors, have told him they may charge him with this, what else could it be? Trump wrote this, and we'll skip the lies for the moment. We're going for a forensic analysis of why he used one word amid the lies. He wrote, quote, whatever happened to the Biden documents case? 20 times more documents than I have, and I'm allowed under the Presidential Records Act, and he's not. What about the classified docs he had in Chinatown and on his garage floor in Delaware? Is he being charged under the Insurrection Act? What about Penn, Senate, etc., etc., etc.? He would delete that post relatively quickly and replace it with, is he being charged under the Espionage Act? The most obvious interpretation of that post is also the most clearly mistaken. Whatever Trump was trying to say why ever he was thinking about the Insurrection Act, he was not accusing Biden of violating it. Obviously, that wouldn't make sense. And just as obviously, since when has sense had anything to do with Trump? But more importantly, if he meant Biden should be, quote, charged under the Insurrection Act, why would he write that and then delete it and then repost it with only one change to make it Espionage Act? No. The sentence and paragraph structure is clearly constructed that way to say that he, Trump, has been charged under an act, but Biden has not, and to imply that Biden should have been. And somehow Trump picked the wrong act. So we can rule out the already unlikely possibility that he wanted to associate Biden and only Biden with the Insurrection Act and then thought better of it. When was the last time Trump thought better of anything? 1982? This is, in the broadest sense, some kind of Freudian mistake. And we circle back to my question, why is Trump thinking about the Insurrection Act? and actually has been in the news twice in the last week. Miles Taylor referenced it last week in an excerpt from his new book, Blowback. Taylor claims Trump was ready to declare an insurrection during the 2018 State of the Union address and use the powers under the act against migrants. So now we're thinking Trump is keeping on top of what Miles Taylor has said? 
I actually went through all Trump truth social media posts since that story came out. No Miles Taylor, surprisingly enough. No reference to the Insurrection Act against the migrants. Now, I could have missed something since Trump's feed is, and I mean this literally, one-third his posts pleading for people to love him, one-third promotions for Jim Caviezel movies, and one-third ads for brassiers for 70-year-old women. I swear to God. But I don't think I missed anything. The other reference in the news to the Insurrection Act lately was by the good folks at Just Security. Last week... They published a gargantuan model prosecution memo for that part of Jack Smith's case, which deals with the insurrection. And in it, they go into a thorough and surprisingly intelligible to us laymen comparison of using the 14th Amendment's insurrection disqualification clause, which carries no jail time but does keep the malefactor forever out of office, and 18 U.S.C. 2383, which prevents inciting an insurrection and giving aid or comfort to insurrectionists. And if you want a harrowing read on why the disqualification clause is so tempting, but has the disadvantage of having not really been prosecuted federally since the Civil War, versus the reasons the January 6th House Committee made a criminal referral against Trump hoping to see him charged not for inciting the insurrection, but for failing to stop it when he had the chance to do so for hours, there it is. The other great thing about it is you can be certain Trump did not read it. Not those paragraphs, not those pages, not the entire just security model prosecution memo, because in the model prosecution memo, there isn't one damn photo for Trump to stare at or a face for him to draw a mustache on. And guess what? Trump also has no idea that conservative judge Michael Luddig said that not only is that model prosecution memo great, but the idea of seeking criminal insurrection charges against Trump puts you in jail charges is both necessary and courageous. Donald Trump doesn't know the difference between Michael Luddig and Booth Lustig, the field goal kicker of the 1966 Buffalo Bills. So no, Trump did not hear Judge Luddig bring up the Insurrection Act, and he didn't read Just Security analyzing the Criminal Insurrection Act and the Disqualification Insurrection Act. And he didn't hear Miles Taylor and the Insurrection Act. And it wasn't some random word that popped into his head instead of cheeseburger. And the Post could just have easily and innocently appeared with the sentence, is Biden being charged under the Cheeseburger Act? No, 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 and no. Which brings us back to the question with which I began. Why did Trump imply he was, quote, being charged under the Insurrection Act. And I have no more idea of the answer now than I did when I began dancing on the head of this pin, and I hate answering a question with another question, but I will go back to this spot and I will stay here until we find out. Did somebody tell Trump that Jack Smith might now charge him under either kind of Insurrection Act? This much about Jack Smith's case we know for certain. He has expanded it again. CNN reporting that federal prosecutors have interviewed the secretaries of state of Georgia, Michigan, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, others, other state officials. And the topic was the impact of misinformation on election workers 
and, quote, the threats that emerged from that from various sources. This is, I think, new territory. There have been plenty of links between 2020 election misinformation and the endangering of election workers and state officials. Just think of the Ruby Freeman Shea Moss lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani. But Jack Smith isn't gathering testimony from victims of electoral intimidation so they can tie it to Rudy. They want to tie it to the Trump campaign per se and Trump per se. And suddenly that sends us reeling back to a previous possibility. Remember the one where I suggested Giuliani has flipped or will? If Giuliani has testimony and evidence that somebody (coughs) Trump (coughs) told him to smear Ms. Freeman and Ms. Moss or to lean on anybody anywhere, it is a whole new vein of prosecutorial gold opening up for Jack Smith. And now we know Jared Kushner testified to a Jack Smith brand grand jury last month. Kushner was one of many witnesses asked about how and when Trump acknowledged in the days after he lost that he had lost. Again, this mainlines into possible charges against Trump for fleecing his cultists, getting them to contribute to cure a stolen election Trump knew wasn't stolen, which could easily by itself mean 44,000 counts of wire fraud. And besides that... How much would you pay to hear a prosecutor say at a Trump trial, Mr. Witness, would you please state your name for the record? And you hear the guy say, Jared Corey Kushner. We already know Alyssa Farah already gave Trump up. She says she told the grand jury the same thing she told the January 6th committee, that days after the election, Trump asked her rhetorically, can you believe I lost to Joe Biden? Yes, we can all believe it because it happened. Can we move on now? And there is one more substantive development. ABC says somebody's lying. And moreover, Jack Smith's office has written to tell them they know they're lying. Somebody in the Trump organization, somebody who testified in May, according to ABC. And last week, that somebody got a target letter saying there seems to have been some light perjury committed. And there may be charges of trying to obstruct the probe. ABC knew who it was and knew that the lying seems to have been about the handling of the Mar-a-Lago security video. ABC reached the person in question, and the only answer from them was, quote, it's none of your business. And they know whoever it is is represented by the attorney Stanley Woodward, and that really does not help as much as it might seem because Stanley Woodward represents or has represented Cash Patel, Dan Scavino, Peter Navarro, Walt Nauta and lots of others, and it's not Walt Nauta because whoever it is, they still want this guy to testify about what he said to Walt Nauta. And no, we don't know when we will hear from the glorified game show judge, Ms. Cannon, who is currently more important than any other figure in the American judiciary. Smith answered the Trump pitch to delay the Florida documents case until, I don't know, the year 11 billion Smith answered by saying the mid-December start he hopes for is entirely fitting, that there is nowhere near the amount of evidence Trump's attorneys have portrayed. The gist of the no-nonsense response from Smith was, if they are real lawyers and judge, if you are a real judge, you can get this done in half the time we are giving you. 
don't want to leave an impression here. I do not want to leave the impression that the madness of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. does not matter to me. It is, in fact, actually personally painful. I was an admirer of his environmental work, which literally cleaned up the river along which I was raised and which used to be a cesspool. I met Bobby 20 years ago when he shared my doubts about why an Ohio county needed to expel the media and the vote checkers, the bipartisan vote checkers, during the 2004 presidential ballot county count because of what that county called terrorism. But this, this disgusting statement that COVID-19 was or even might have been targeted to attack Caucasians and black people, but there are genetic structural differences that leave the Chinese and the Ashkenazi Jews safer is absolute disqualifying bullshit. And then to blame the media when he's heard saying it on tape, no media required. That, in some respects, is far more disturbing because it's absolute madness. The issue of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is no longer a political or moral or racist one. It is whether or not there is anybody who cares enough about him to get him the inpatient mental health care he needs. Also of interest here to us, speaking of kind of the same topic, Tucker Carlson. Oh, nothing. He just attacked six different Republicans seeking the presidential nomination. And I'm not going to pretend I give a damn about them, even if those attacks did take place right in person at an event in Iowa. But for literally years, I have looked at Tucker Carlson's failure, his ascent, his new failure, and I have thought... This reminds me of the career arc of somebody in the vast annals of American news commentary, which I have studied in addition to participating in. Somebody I've read about, somebody I've read about and been astonished by their story. And after this debacle in Iowa on Friday, I finally figured out who Tucker Carlson is. The name will mean nothing to you. So holding it back provides me with no tease here. I'll go into depth in this in a moment. But Tucker Carlson is Boke Carter. And one fine morning, many years ago, Boke Carter was the number one news commentator in America. And then, on that fine morning, things happened. So that at 7 o'clock that night, Boke Carter's career was over. That's next. This is Countdown. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and 
over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Oberman. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Des Moines, Iowa. The good news for Tucker Carlson is his delusions of grandeur took the weekend off, at least publicly. Carlson did not insult any more Republican presidential candidates for the nomination while interviewing them at a Republican forum of Republican religious nuts. He did not somehow again make Chris Christie and Mike Pence look sympathetic. He did not somehow again accuse Ukraine of attacking Catholicism because Ukraine had restricted the activities of the Russian Orthodox Church in Ukraine, with the Russian Orthodox Church now being run by Vladimir Putin. He did not once more boast of not taking the COVID vaccine nor claim that countless people were, quote, injured by that vaccine, even though the only injuries in this equation have been to Tucker Carlson's brain. And he did not post any more interviews with psychos who are charged in Romania with sex trafficking. The bad news for Tucker Carlson is... I have finally realized, after months of being unable to put my finger on this, exactly whose career path Tucker Carlson has now followed. The answer is Boke Carter. You don't know who Boke Carter is. Tucker Carlson does not know who Boke Carter is. And despite what you will hear happened to Boke Carter, it is kind of amazing 
that he has been, in essence, completely erased from human history. Because as of Friday, August 26, 1938, Harold Thomas Henry Boke Carter was the most popular news commentator in this country and had, depending on the week, either the second highest rated news broadcast of any kind or the highest rated news broadcast of any kind. And at the same time, he wrote the second most widely read newspaper column in this country. The British-raised Boke Carter signed off his nightly 15-minute news commentary on the CBS radio network at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on August 26, 1938, with his trademark, Cheerio! The network switched to a summertime replacement show called The Ghost of Benjamin Sweet. And then, speaking of ghosts, Boke Carter was basically never heard from again. Carter's instantaneous fame was built on criticism of President Roosevelt and the New Deal and the left. He dismissed the Nazis as any threats to America. He opposed unions in this country. He took absolute positions. And he joined America first. Hello, everyone. Both God is speaking. So let us wake up before it is too late and defend America first. Before trying to defend someone else, let's first be able to defend ourselves. I thank you. Boke Carter was a conservative radio commentator. Just as in our own time, nothing that unusual and then something very unusual happened. Senate Majority Leader Joe Robinson of Arkansas had a heart attack and died, and Boke Carter went on the CBS radio network and said, not implied, but said, that President Roosevelt had caused the heart attack and thus caused Senator Robinson's death. When the recipient of some of his other criticisms questioned Carter's immigration status, Carter sent an official unemployment report card to the White House addressed to the president and wrote on it, Beware, libel me at your peril. Carter spoke at a public forum and insisted America should never go to war, even against fascists. By April of 1938, he was telling his listeners of a plot by Democrats and the White House to silence news commentators and conservatives. Any of this sound familiar? I would expect much of it would sound familiar to Tucker Carlson. Boke Carter was off radio for eight months, then he started a series of three commentaries a week on a lesser network. By 1941, he was on only sporadically in the afternoons, two days a week. By 1942, he had two shows a week on a regional network and had reinvented himself as a liberal commentator who publicly advocated for President Roosevelt and who addressed Roosevelt on the air as, quote, dear boss. By 1943, Carter and his final wife had joined a religious cult. He had legally changed his name to Ephraim Boke Carter. His radio stardom, which had begun just eight years earlier, his radio career, which had begun just five years before that, when a Philadelphia station needed someone to narrate live coverage of a rugby match, was over. Three years after that rugby match, the station sent Boke Carter to cover the Lindbergh kidnapping trial in New Jersey, and overnight, CBS gave him a network national slot, sponsored first by Philco Radios, then by General Foods. 
He ranked first in the ratings in 1936, 1937, 1938. He appeared originally on 23 CBS stations, then on 60, then on 85, and then on none. In 1944, Boke Carter died of a heart attack in Hollywood. He had just turned 41 years old. As near as I can tell, through a search of internet and old newspaper archives, the number of newspaper stories that merely mention Boke Carter in passing in this country, in this century, now totals 22. Still ahead on Countdown Sports and things I promised not to tell merge. The veteran manager of the New York Mets, Buck Showalter, may have, as they say, lost the room. I will tell you of the day when he owned the room so thoroughly that he could order all of his New York Yankee players out of that room and tell them to go and hide, supposedly because they didn't want to talk to me. First time for the Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. Worst persons in the world. Boke Carter speaking. The bronze Christina Caramo, the woman who believes that demonic possession can be transmitted sexually. And again, as an aside, how would she know that? Well, she's got bigger fish to fry right now. Ms. Caramo got elected chairwoman of the Michigan State Republican Party, and as rumored, it is about to go under financially. A tape of a July 8th internal meeting of the state party has been obtained by the Detroit News, and on it, the party's general counsel confirms that the Michigan GOP has been, quote, threatened with default on a loan, and the party is a little short of funds. Republican lawmakers say the Michigan GOP needs between 30 and $40 million per election cycle to compete. 16 months before the next election, the Michigan Republican Party's budget director is heard on that tape saying they have $93,231.90. The runner-up, ah, him again. New York City Mayor Eric Adams. He didn't end his career enough when he attacked in public an 84-year-old tenant advocate who escaped the Holocaust. He compared her to a plantation owner. Well, he's decided to go back in on her at a Brooklyn church, even though his victim had moved on. Adams did not. Adams now says he heard his dead mother explaining to him not to let someone disrespect you which means he's going to have to have arguments with several million of us here in New York who don't respect him. Happily, Mayor Adams has enough ego and delusion to fill in that respect gap. Adams says in a tape of the speech at the church, quote, I'm the symbol of black manhood in this city, in this country, and what it represents. I am the mayor of the most powerful city on the globe, and people need to recognize that. Mayor, how did that work out for Mr. Giuliani? Just shut up and do the job and earn the respect. But the winner, Steve Bannon, once again, international fascist slob of the year, winner of the annual Ballon d'Or. This is not a major thing that he does, like, you know, trying to install a dictator or trying to fix an election or going on trial for fraud. 
This is just a threat he made on his streaming show against Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Quote, I got news for McCarthy and this audience has news. Over our dead bodies, will you do anything to Matt Gates? Unquote. Steve? Deal! Steve, well, how would you tell if that was a dead body? Bannon, today's worst person in the This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you run for office or take on the country's biggest problems, but they can help you solve one of the peskiest problems at home, pests. You know, the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, even the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know intricate political strategy, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Sports Center. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is 
Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, stop me if you've heard this before, but the world's greatest soccer player has signed to play here in the U.S. of A. He's... Wait, they didn't they didn't fill in the blank on the piece of paper this time. Who is it? Oh, oh, okay. Here it is. The uh, world's greatest soccer player has signed to play here in the U.S. of A. He's Lionel Messi. He's just turned 36. He just washed out of his last European team in Paris, and a lot of his teammates were not sad to see him go. And the Miami team in Major League Soccer, which is owned by David Beckham, which is in 29th place out of uh, 29 teams, just gave Messi somewhere between 50 and 60 million a year to play in Miami through the 2025 season. American soccer fans, we'll call them football fans, we don't need to piss them off more than usual, will never admit this, but this country has been importing the declining stars of other nations since literally the first day somebody tried to put together a true professional league in this country, which was in 1967. Literally, all the teams in the original 1967 United Soccer Association were just international teams on summer break claiming to be from American cities. The Cleveland Stokers, they were actually Stoke City from England with star goalie Gordon Banks. The Houston Stars, they were Bangu of Brazil. Chicago Mustangs, Cagliari of Sardinia. George Best came to the United States. Bobby Moore, Eusebio. Then the Big Fish, Pele. Then Franz Beckenbauer and Canalia and Cruyff and Niskins. And more recently, Thierry Henry. And then Wayne Rooney and Frank Lampard and Ibrahimovic and Beckham himself. And their net effect on pro soccer in this country... It is America's sport of the future. It always has been, and it always will be. I mean, what did Beckham do for Major League Soccer? He became just what America did not have enough of, a sports team owner. Messi makes his Miami debut Friday against the Mexican club Cruz Azul. It's probably for a championship cup. Every other game in international soccer is for a championship cup of some sort. The failing, of course, is that of all the internationals Americans brought here in this endless belief that yesterday's stars from other lands will build a future in this one, they did not bring the one man who could have actually sold it to the United States. The fabled Italian goalie Gianluca Pagliuca. One other sports note, my baseball spidey sense here is tingling, and I think New York may shortly be the scene of baseball carnage. One of those things where a team fires its hitting coach, and fires its manager, and fires its general manager, and trades literally every player it can get rid of at the trade deadline in two weeks. The New York Mets, they vanished without a trace about June 1st, they have two star pitchers who are not pitching much star-like. They are to be paid $87 million between the two of them this year. They have no trade clauses, and they are combined 78 years old. They make Messi look like a spring chicken. The only thing messy about the Mets is the roster construction. If I'm right, this would be the end of one of my favorite people in baseball, manager Buck Showalter of the Mets. I hope I am wrong, but I kind of feel like I should tell you the Buck Showalter story now, rather than wait. Finally, to our number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. 
The New York Yankees were in their first pennant race in five years. They had reeled off eight wins in ten games to reach a first-place tie with the defending world champion Toronto Blue Jays. It was Sunday, August 22nd, 1993, and I was at Yankee Stadium just because... We were about to start a month of intensive preparations for the launch of the ill-fated ESPN2. Good evening and welcome to the end of our careers. That one. And this was probably going to be my last chance to go to the city, visit my folks, see a ball game, whatever, till further notice. And here was my childhood team, the Yankees, with a lineup that now included friends of mine, like Danny Tartable and Mike Gallego and Don Mattingly against the Royals, for whom my friends Wally Joyner and David Cohn played, and a seat awaiting me in the press box on a beautiful late summer Sunday afternoon with just the earliest hint of fall in the air and Bobby Darren singing on the PA system. And the Yankees got crushed. Kansas City started a pitcher named Chris Haney, who was much less successful than his mediocre 5.47 ERA implied. He would somehow last for 11 seasons and become statistically one of the worst pitchers of a generation. And that day, the Yankees got at least one base runner on in eight of the nine innings against Chris Haney, and he still shut them out. Seven to nothing. And you could sense right then that whatever it was that a team needed to have to hold its own down the stretch, the 1993 New York Yankees did not have it. Still, it was fun to visit with reporter friends, some of whom I'd known since I'd broken in 14 years earlier, and some I hadn't seen since then. The only oddity was that at some point during the game, one of the kids from the Yankees' media relations department came over and asked me for my ID. And when I showed him my ID, he asked me if I was planning to go into the Yankee clubhouse afterwards. I said, funny you should ask that. I am headed downtown for dinner, but I missed my friend Danny Tartable before the game for some reason. And I just want to pop in and say hello. And the kid said, thanks. Sorry to trouble you. And he left. And the radio reporter I was sitting next to, Don Gould, said that that was one of the strangest things he had seen in that press box and he added and nowadays all you see up here is strange things as the yankees went out limply in the ninth leaving bernie williams stranded on first naturally i waited until all the reporters with real deadlines had taken the first couple of elevator trips down to the yankee clubhouse in the basement and then i leisurely made my way downstairs I navigated the catacombs of the stadium basement as I had since it had opened in 1976 and felt warm and nostalgic and at peace. I showed my pass to the guard at the clubhouse door and walked into the clubhouse to find the Yankee clubhouse lacking the one thing it had literally always featured in each of the dozens and dozens of times I'd previously entered it since I was 17 years old. Players. There were no Yankee players in the Yankee clubhouse. No Yankees. No Yankees still in uniform. No Yankees half-dressed. No Yankees not dressed. No sounds of other Yankees in the showers off to the left. Nothing. Well, that wasn't quite right. I realized something after about a minute of walking slowly from locker to locker thinking, isn't this where they used to be? Maybe Mattingly is crouching out of sight over here, and maybe Tartable is hiding behind his suit after that 0 for 3. 
I realized that while there were no Yankees in the Yankee clubhouse, there were reporters in the Yankee clubhouse, and they were all staring at me and angrily staring at me. I said to them, might have been my friend from upstairs, Don Gould, what the hell's going on? And he said testily, I don't know. Why don't you tell us? The reporters around him, who had never taken their eyes off me, now murmured quietly, but with a subtext of threat and menace and vengeance in their indistinct gurgling. Just at this point, Arthur Richman, who had been the Mets public relations man forever and was now a Yankees vice president of something for some reason, and more importantly was the surviving brother of the great baseball reporter Milt Richmond, who had so helped me at the start of my career at UPI, Arthur tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're Keith Olbermann, right? And I said, yes, we've met before. I used to work with your brother. And he did not look happily at me. And I asked him if he wanted to see my pass or my ID or my identifying birthmarks. Arthur did not smile. The manager would like to see you in his office. I still didn't have the faintest idea what was going on. Have I been sent down to the miners, Arthur? I asked jauntily. Yes, yes, you have. Richmond answered with utter seriousness. Arthur Richmond escorted me to the little room on the home plate side of the clubhouse in which I had once seen the late Billy Martin shout at a coach, two pitchers, three writers, and a clubhouse attendant who had been with the team since 1927. The current occupant of that tiny office, the manager, rose from his desk. Keith, hi, Buck Showalter. I'm the manager here. I reminded him that we had done a lengthy interview for ESPN Radio the year before. That's right, I'd forgotten. I apologize. Listen, I wanted to tell you, I, I, I think you've brought something refreshing and fun to Sports Center. I watch you all the time, especially when we're on the road. You know the game, too. That, that's important. But I have to tell you, my players have a problem with what you do. No one that surprised. Players were like that. In 1993, very few sportscasters said anything negative about players. They certainly did not make jokes or puns about them. I saw you on the field before the game, and I heard some of our guys, Showalter continued, like, like Paul O'Neill and Wade Boggs and Joe Girardi, they were, they were talking about how they were thinking about going out there on the field and punching you in the head. I flashed back suddenly to 1989 when Boggs went on Geraldo Rivera's show and announced he was a sex addict and how after checking with a few of his Red Sox teammates, whom I knew from the year I worked in Boston, who said that was nonsense, I went on the air on my sportscast on a local station in L.A., having intercut Boggs's weepy comments to Geraldo with the music video from Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. I have to say, it was pretty funny, and also might have been the meanest thing I ever did on TV. Boggs wanted to punch me in the head on the field at Yankee Stadium? That checked out. Go on, I said to Buck Showalter. In, in fact, the players are all staying in the training room in the back until they've been assured you've left the clubhouse and you won't be returning. They, they, they voted unanimously. I thought about this. When did they vote unanimously? While they were getting shut out by the worst pitcher of a generation? That did not check out. Now, like I said, personally, I like what you do, but I think you may want to consider the implications of what not having any access to players ever again will have on your career, especially on such a high-profile program as SportsCenter. I thought about it briefly, and I smiled at Buck Showalter. None whatsoever, actually. I'm a studio guy. I never have to go to games, and more to the point, I, I've just left SportsCenter for this new ESPN2 network 
because my boss has said it's basically going to be a network that's designed around my sense of humor. Buck Showalter was 37 years old then, and at the end of his second year as a major league manager, his team having just achieved a tie for first place, had just gotten the air let out of its balloon by an epically bad pitcher on a not-so-good team. Plus, they were due on a flight for Chicago, and the bus was supposed to leave in an hour. But Paul O'Neill, Wade Boggs, and Joe Girardi were worried about some dumb sportscaster making jokes. I knew... They were doomed. And if manager Buck Showalter actually let Paul O'Neill, Wade Boggs, and Joe Girardi worry about some dumb sportscaster and his jokes, Buck Showalter, too, was doomed. And sure enough, they would lose 20 of their last 37 games after that day and not make the playoffs for two years and not actually get anywhere in the playoffs until after Showalter was fired and replaced by my friend Joe Torre. Right around then, after the firing, I was part of the annual ESPN Awards show, the ESPYs. It was the post-ESPYs party, and I went to get a drink and turned a corner, and there coming toward me were Paul O'Neill, Wade Boggs, and Joe Girardi. I was just about to gulp when O'Neill shouted, There he is, our favorite ESPN guy! Handshakes. All of them. Girardi said, he was amazed. Every time I ripped a player, he said it was somebody he also didn't like. How did I know? Boggs said, somebody told me that you put my Geraldo appearance into that Robert Palmer song. If you got a tape of that, I'd like to see it. I told them the Buck Showalter story immediately. Oh, God, I remember that, said O'Neill. He was pissed you were in the ballpark, and we got shut out, and he, he made us stay in the trainer's room and not come out till after you left, and God, it was terrible. The smile vanished from Joe Girardi's face. Buck did stuff like that all the time. We should all have a drink and talk about it. We all had a drink and we talked about it. Years later, I was telling my late friend Pedro Gomez of ESPN the story, and he said Showalter used to do this to him when Showalter was managing the Arizona Diamondbacks and Pedro was a beat reporter for a newspaper in Phoenix. You know, Colburn wants to beat you up, but I stopped him. He quoted Showalter as saying, Greg Colburn was a six-foot, 190-pound weightlifter from California's Inland Empire who seemed to play baseball in his spare time. So, Pedro said, I confronted him one day, and he said, Dude, what are you talking about? You know Buck just makes this crap up. The Yankees fired Buck Showalter in 1995, as I mentioned, and won the World Series in 1996. The Diamondbacks fired him in 2000 and won the World Series in 2001. Then he went to work... In, of all places, the studio at ESPN for two years. Then he got another managing job in Texas, got fired from there, went back to ESPN for three more years, and then became the manager at Baltimore in 2010. I was at the Baltimore spring training camp one day, that March, and I see walking toward me from the other side of the field, trying to capture my attention, Buck Showalter. I am now 51 years old. He is now 53 years old. It is nearly 17 years since the day he locked his entire team in the trainer's room in the middle of a pennant race in a complicated ritual that would have been too labyrinthine a plot for Tom Clancy just to express some cheesy grudge against the way I did sportscasts. Hey, Showalter said when he finally reached me. When I pulled that stunt on you at Yankee Stadium, was that 93 or 94? We shook hands as I laughed, and I told him, it was August of 1993. I can get you the exact date if you need it. 
I'm sorry. I had not I had not been in television yet. I, I, I didn't get any of it. I, I, I just thought you guys came in and shouted your heads off and then went home. I, I didn't get it, obviously. Why, why didn't you tell me off or something? He asked. I shrugged. I said, well, there was you. There were six coaches, 25 players there versus me, plus all the reporters who were angry at me who were on deadline. What if you were telling the truth? Now Buck laughed and apologized again. We have been professional friends ever since. Whenever I have seen him, we compare the cruelties of aging and talk about politics and television. I saw him two Saturdays ago. After four more years in TV, when it looked like his managing career might be over, he is back running the New York Mets at the age of 66 and doing a damn fine job of it. And every once in a while, I bring up the trainer's room full of Yankees and he flinches and says, you know, there's one last thing about it that now I cannot possibly understand. That trainer's room, that was really tiny. How did the players all fit in there? I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. Sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was my friend Larry David. Everything else is pretty much my fault. Don't forget Countdown Now, also available on YouTube with the wonderful little animated me. Subscribe there too. Give yourself options. That's Countdown for this, the 923rd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Bulletins as the news warrants. Till then, folk Carter speaking. No, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and cheerio. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it, Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.